Exit for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more podcasts about movies, nostalgia, and pop culture, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. I need a hero. I'm holy lover, a hero till the end of the night. He's gotta be strong and he's gotta be fast and he's gotta be fresh on the fight. I need a hero. I'm holy lover, a hero till the morning light. Hey everybody, welcome back to Exit for Podcast. Okay, so I'm Nico, and, I'm Jonah. and we have a whole lot to cover today. Last time we covered Giant Size X-Men number 1, Giant Size Fantastic 4 number 4, and Uncanny X-Men 94 through 100, as well as Classic 1 through 8. It was quite a reading load. We also did an episode featuring the Champions 1 through 6 with my co-host Kyle in an effort to cover all of the appearances of Marvel's Merry Mutants. Jonah, episode number 1. We read a, like a mutant fuckload, didn't we? We really did. We read so much, and... I'm so excited to keep going. I'm ready to keep diving in. I'm ready to see what where this franchise took off and what made it so amazing and what made it the most successful franchise it is today. We've had a couple of missteps as well, but I think we're starting to get somewhere a little bit better. To cover a little bit of what we discussed last episode, in Giant Size X-Men number one, Xavier assembled a new team when his old team went missing. The new team featuring Nightcrawler, Wolverine, Storm, Thunderbird, Colossus, Sunfire, and Banshee. Although in the retelling, classic X-Men number one, it seemed a little bit more like Xavier was pushed to form a new team after Cyclops wouldn't stop whining. The new team goes out to save the old team from this island they're trapped on, and it turns out they're trapped by the island, which is actually a mutant that's trying to eat other mutants, so the X-Men do what the X-Men always do, which is throw it into the sun. So then they come home, and then half of them quit, and then they fight some animal people, and then one of them dies, Thunderbird, rest in peace, buddy. Then they get attacked by demons. Then an old costume of Cyclopses, my controls his younger brother Havoc, who's basically Cyclops, except he's like longer and thicker and generally more pleasing, as well as Havoc's girlfriend Lorna. Uh, she has green hair. And then it's Christmas, and there's Sentinels, and there's Space, and there's backup stories, and the Professor, and Jean, and Scott, and Jeannie. I Duh. German? Claustrophobia! Jean! Phoenix! So, God, there's so much. So, talk to me, Jonah. What are we reading today? Today, we're going to be reading Uncanny X-Men number 101 to 108, as well as their corresponding classic stories. Right, and that's a really important note. This time we're going to be reading Classic 9 to 15. Classic X-Men only printed the stories that really fit what editors at the time saw as the run. X-Men 106 was a backup story that was produced when Dave Cockrum was running late with his pencils for the next installment of the epic, amazing space saga that they were (laughs) unfolding at the time. And as such, it was excluded from classic X-Men's recollecting. At times, we're going to be reading a different number of uncanny issues from classic issues. Jonah, you want to tell us a little bit about the plots of the issues we'll be covering today? Absolutely. In Uncanny X-Men number 101 to 103... The X-Men narrowly survive their rocket return to Earth thanks to Jean, who undergoes a massive transformation. The X-Men recover at Banshee's childhood castle, where they're attacked by Black Tom and Juggernaut. Charles, who continues to face his psychic nightmares, senses the danger and asks Cyclops for help, but he refuses because he's a baby, insisting on staying with Jean. The team manages to defeat the pair, but not before taking a serious beating. In Uncanny X-Men number 104, the X-Men journey to Muir Island to check on Moira's estate when Magneto attacks, who I didn't realize was a baby at this point, more powerful than ever. Uncanny X-Men number 105 to 108, Eric the Red, along with help from Fire Lord, pushes his plan forward, attacking the X-Men on several fronts, as the space mind finally reaches Charles on Earth. Eric kidnaps the alien, Lalandra, leaving the X-Men to give chase to space, again! In space, the X-Men discover Lalandra is trying to save the universe from her crazy brother who wishes to use the Macron Kestrel to give himself limitless power. They battle way cooler-looking aliens known as the Imperial Guards, and when all hope is lost, they are saved by the Star Jammers. After fighting two of the Crystal's Guardians, the X-Men wind up inside the Crystal itself, 
Corsair is revealed to be Scott's long-lost father on the day he is saved by the Phoenix. Oh, and Charles relives a memory of his powers going out of control in the X-Men fighting the old X-Men. Again. Man, we're going to have a lot of things to say about that shoehorned-in backup issue. But I do believe we have a number of classic X-Men stories as well. Oh boy, we do, and... They are not fun to get through. We're going to talk a little bit about how there were things I think we both felt were missing from these issues in terms of like, you know, if we had more time, we would have wanted this or that. And these backup stories would have been a great time to get those. But instead, we get one or two strong and decent ones and we get some clunkers, man. Tell us about them, Jonah. In Classic X-Men number nine, Kurt goes full on Sixth Sense and teaches a ghost how to juggle. Classic X-Men number ten, Logan faces down an elusive Sabretooth who manages to stay just out of the runt's reach. Classic X-Men number 11, an awkward and generic man-pain story sort of featuring a toned-down Storm impersonator. Classic X-Men number 12, Magneto faces his own demons. Classic X-Men number 13, Mystery vs. a Shark, and the rest of it is us versus Danny Rand's perm. Classic X-Men number 14, Melandra breaks out, but somehow really about Xavier. Classic X-Men number 15, Sarge Amor is aboard of Corsair's misfortune, having to push his two children, Scott and Alex, from their crashing plane, only to be lifted into space by an evil bird people who kill Catherine. Yeah. This is a bruiser. These classic stories are kind of rough. All of the stories we're going to be covering today were written by Chris Claremont. Dave Cockworm provided the art on X-Men 101 to 105, as well as Uncanny X-Men 107, while Bob Brown did the fill-in on 106, and John Byrne kicked off his legendary run on 108. And all classic X-Men stories have art by John Bolton. The additional pages included in the issues have art by a number of incredibly talented people, not the least of which is Bob Layton, who would go on to launch X-Factor and then pull a Dave Cockrum, not be able to handle the deadlines, and have to leave the book pretty suddenly. I would like to say that Dave Cockrum's incredible run on X-Men, they have a really good sense of humor about him leaving the book. At the bottom of page 108, they say that this story is dedicated to the man who made it possible, Dave Cockrum, and then Dave Cockrum put a little note beneath it that said, I'm not dead. It's a pretty funny little thing. Uncanny number 101 was published in October of 1976. The classic X-Men that reprints it, Classic X-Men 9, was published May of 1987. These classic X-Men stories are going to be coming out on the heels of it falling apart. Don't believe Marvel is able to really pull off another successful reprint run. After this, they do a thing called X-Men Archives, where they reprint a number of the classic Captain Britain stories I'm covering over with Kevo, but I believe even that was because those were the first time those had ever been published in America. So let's start X-Men 101, the only way you can fucking start that shit. The Phoenix. I mean, there's nothing else you can even begin to talk about X-Men 101 to 103 without discussing. Gene starts Uncanny X-Men's reboot, you know, Giant Size X-Men being like the damsel in distress. Absolutely, don't get me wrong, Storm is on the X-Men, but it's a very male-heavy title. Jonah, what was it like for you reading this thing that you kind of knew about? It's really interesting because whenever I thought of Jean Grey, I only knew her as the Phoenix. I didn't know her as Marvel Girl. I always thought that she had the Phoenix that was part of her original power set. So seeing her come into it, it's amazing just to see how amazingly powerful she is. Remember exactly where it says it, but at some point Charles makes a comment that Jean was originally the weakest member on the X-Men, and now she is the strongest. She has the whole she has a whole cosmic force inside of her, and I think it's just an incredible scene. I think the art is beautiful. It's stunning to see her pop out of the water and say, I am Phoenix. It's it's great. There's a term in the fan community, Clarmazon, 
which is a Claremont Amazon woman. Claremont loves these overpowered women. I think one of the most powering things, the most ridiculous things, is Jean uses her mind and she guides the, the rocket ship to safety and she's expanding into this thing so much greater than she's ever been. And all of the X-Men survive and they crash in the water and they're all like, oh, but where's Jean? Where's Jean? And then she comes popping out of the water and she's flying and she declares she is Phoenix in this brand new costume with these amazing new powers. The first thing anybody says is, guys, did you notice she changed clothes? You bring up a really great point. It's like, I don't even think anyone mentions her calling herself something different. I think they really only just talk about how she changed clothing and it's, that's what you're concerned with right now? Something we're going to start to see a lot. The X-Men in fight after fight after fight after fight piled on top of fight after fight after fight after fight after fight. You start to reach a point where there's no way they could possibly recover from each fight long enough to start the next fight. The X-Men sort of had this non-stop event that started in, in 98 and doesn't really come to a, a conclusion until this point in 101. I do also think it's important that while we're discussing the, these amazing scenes of Phoenix, it's incredible because Phoenix isn't even the star of this arc, but she's going to get this incredible scene that, that really blows my mind. There's this moment where she's with her roommate, Misty Knight, where Gina's like, you know, Misty... Oh my god, life though, right? And Misty's like, yeah, right? Life. And Jean's kind of like, Misty, what do you think it feels like if you died and brought yourself back? And the art on Jean is so heavy. It's just this incredible scene where you really are starting to get what they're trying to sell. I think it's a great moment between their friendship. And in a comic run that's mainly male-dominant, we see the women stick together a lot. We're, we're seeing it in the classic stories. We're seeing it in interactions. Having... A friend like this for Jean is really, really important. Showing Misty sticking by Jean through all this is really great. It does mean something to me that both of Jean's closest friends are black women, especially in a time where it was hard to find two black characters in a single comic book. But I did just want to say that that amazing scene with Misty just gets me by the throat. And that panel just tells me so much. It's an example of where Dave Cockrum and Chris Claremont came together really beautifully as an art and writing team. I kind of find it hysterical and amazing that Jean shouldn't be the focus of this arc, yet somehow steals the spotlight. I'm just excited to see where the Phoenix can go with this. I do think we get some really interesting moments in this arc from the other main story, which is the Black Tom Juggernaut story. The five X-Men that are willing to leave Jean's side because Xavier gives them the choice. Xavier literally says, you have to go, you're in the way. And Banshee's like, yo, let's go hang out at my castle. Storm, Logan, Nightcrawler, Colossus, and Banshee. I do think it's important to note that Colossus and Banshee, I think, have a combined 10 lines in this three-issue arc, if that. This arc takes a quick pivot toward Storm. The first thing Storm does when she gets to her castle bedroom is strip naked because clothes are killing her. This is more of that white man seeing a powerful black woman from the continent. It is not a country. Although this is the first time, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, this is the first time she says Kenya. She actually does specify a, a specific area in Africa as opposed to being from all of Africa. And then she actually gets a charming scene with Nightcrawler. We started all of this because you love Nightcrawler and I love Nightcrawler. And I wanted to share how much I love Kurt with you. And I think one of the coolest things is this episode in particular has just a number of awesome Kurt moments. Do you want to talk about the one between him and Storm with the image inducer? Oh my god, it's great. It's a great day to be a Kurt fan. And if you aren't a Kurt fan, I hope you can be converted to one from just these scenes alone. In a run where we're talking about how not enough characters are getting characterization, where 
a new reader can easily fall in love with them. Kurt just stands out as a character who has these little moments that you really just want to just root for him and just he's trying to just make Storm laugh and try to impress her and he's using his image producer to be someone else and just be this charming flirty guy that is like I'm not gonna let everyone else on the team have fun you're beautiful I'm gonna let you know that I do love that flirty moment but that flirty moment gives way to a pretty severe moment we find out this whole arc is is Black Tom Cassidy Banshee's cousin and Juggernaut Xavier's stepbrother and they have this plan against the X-Men Storm is quickly rendered asunder by her claustrophobia. Colossus, as strong as he is, is no match for Juggernaut. Logan can't seem to get the drop on anybody, so I guess it's pretty early in Claremont's run because Logan isn't unstoppable yet. And Banshee can't actually hurt Black Tom because they have the same Cyclops Alex thing going on. The only problem with that is then why does Banshee go after Black Tom if all he can do to hurt Black Tom is punch him? And he even goes out of way to say something like, I can sock ye on the jar. I just don't understand then why he would choose to not go after Juggernaut whom he can more than sock on the jaw. Yeah, something we've talked about in our notes. In the issue that really should have been more about Banshee, Banshee still finds himself on the back burner. And it's so weird and bizarre. And it's just like, Banshee is the ugly redhead stepchild that they do not like. Do you remember in Giant Size X-Men, Banshee kind of looked like pudding was melting in the heat? Yes. That's actually on purpose. Banshee in his first appearances was like disfigured. By the 90s, no matter how non-human you are, you are designed very sexually. Banshee gets real hot in the 70s and 80s. This battle that we're about to get into with 101 to 103, some form of this battle actually lasts the whole run of this arc. Black Tom and Juggernaut get Storm, Colossus, and Logan, and Banshee, and tie them up. But one of the X-Men manages to get away. Kurt manages to get away. Kurt falls through some rubble. And Jonah, I remember you were pretty confused by the demon Karn in the first episode. Jonah, can you please tell our audience who saves Kurt this art? You know who's living inside Cassidy Keep? Oh, who's living there, Jonah? Who's living there? Fucking leprechauns. Magical leprechauns that save the elf man? The Keebler elves themselves are living inside Cassidy Keep. A weird fantasy approach I was not expecting. It's this weird deus ex machina just to talk about Kurt's new ability and to have someone save them since Scott's not coming. Kurt's power up is really interesting. He gets a secondary physical ability, which is when he is in complete darkness, he is invisible, which almost kind of sounds like if you close your eyes, you can't see him, but it does get executed much cooler than that. That does tie into a theme we're going to have this episode. Kurt is clever. Kurt is more clever than the other X-Men by half. This is the start where we see Kurt start using his brain a little bit more. Specifically, there will be two instances in this reading list where he uses his image inducer to an effect that you wouldn't think he would use it outside of just everyday life. He actually uses it for combat really effectively and really in the spur of the moment to save his teammates. In this arc in particular, Storm's claustrophobia completely makes her incapable of fighting. We even get like a really cool backstory sequence on her and she's the first X-Man we really delve into the childhood of under Claremont's pen. I know you specifically, Jonah, found 
it a little jarring where they put it in the middle of all the action. Not that I didn't enjoy it. Also, I know we talked about Storm's backstory where they originally just said Africa. I believe this is where they state she's originally from Cairo itself, and then... She was a thief on the streets of Cairo as a child, absolutely. Great save. At some point, she feels a calling, and she leaves Cairo, and she goes towards Kenya. But it was just really a little shoehorned in, again, to make this arc not about who it should have been. For half of one of these issues, it's about Storm's backstory of what happened to her and where she got her claustrophobia. And not that I didn't enjoy every moment of it, but it was just a weird place to put it. Yeah, and you know, I think they only even focused so much on her claustrophobia because her powers are so fucking limitless. When we're talking about Storm, they need a way to keep her realistically powerful. And the way they do that is they give her fears and they give her shortcomings emotionally because she's such a powerful being and she's so not used to having limits. Her limits are hard for her. We're shown that Xavier desperately needs to save his X-Men. He feels through his psychic rapport with his students across the world that Storm is in trouble, and which I kind of question the validity of how that... He's like, Scott, we must go save them. And Scott's like, no, Professor, dream read me. Xavier's like, ah. All of a sudden... While the X-Men are all tied up in Cassidy Keep, out of nowhere, Xavier comes running and bounding and punching and kicking and flying around the room. And it turns out it's because it's actually Nightcrawler wearing his image inducer. It's such a great thing because as a reader, I was thrown. I'm actually thrown every time. I forget what it is. I constantly think, oh, it's Xavier manifesting a psychic projection. And then it turns out it's Nightcrawler. And that's such a cool thing. You know, Nightcrawler is actually an extraordinary strategist. And we will see him get his due throughout the X-Men's run forever. The X-Men really do respect Nightcrawler. This starts, the X-Men just get their asses kicked over and over and over and over and over. Yeah, this specific reading list, they just lose and lose and lose. Like, they do not really get any wins. One, like, fight win. That's really it. And almost every win they have in the eight issues we're discussing is by virtue of Gene pulling it out as the Phoenix. The X-Men are about to get into a lot of situations they wouldn't be in if it weren't for the Phoenix, but... Jonah, do you have anything else before we barrel on into 104 and the return of Magneto? I'm excited to see where our favorite terrorist comes back. You know, Magneto is a terrorist by all standards. He's right that it's important that minorities not always be the nice guy. As a gay Latino, I definitely think you fight for your rights if you want them. I just don't think killing everyone is the way to do it. Sorry, Magnus. 104 is actually the reason I'm so hardcore about making sure giant size Fantastic Four number four gets in there. Jonah, the last time you saw Madrox, what was he up to? Begging for an answer as to what's going on and then getting bullied by that Fantastic Four. So the last time you saw this scared young mutant, he was being beaten relentlessly. (laughs) (laughs) But he's back. He seems happy. We know what Charles did with him finally. Yeah, the whole Moira reveal. Moira shows up and she's like, I'm here to be a housekeeper person. Out of nowhere, she's like, I've got this machine gun! And everybody's like, God damn, Moira, your mutant power is crazy. She's kind of got this thing going with Banshee. But so then it's all of a sudden like, oh, we got to go back to Muir Island, where Moira McTaggart is from, where she left multiple man, her young charge, Jamie Madrox. Was there any wonder that the bad guy would be Magneto? I just want to address something you said, because something you said is really funny. You didn't realize Magneto had recently been a baby. Magneto became a baby in Defenders from issue 67 of the original run of X-Men to issue 93. It was all reprints, but that didn't stop Marvel from having the X-Men or their villains occasionally appear in other titles. Spider-Man and the Juggernaut have run into each other on more than one occasion. Magneto also came across the Avengers as well as the Defenders. In an adventure versus the Defenders, Magneto was left as a baby. 
So Magneto was recently turned into a baby, and what do they say about his power level now that he's an adult again? What happened to it? Oh, it magnified. So someone got a fucking power-up? The most powerful villain the X-Men would ever face now is living up to that name. The power-ups are coming in this thing like you're fucking hitting boxes in Mario Kart. <laughs> it's, it's getting a little crazy. So, okay, the X-Men are kind of fighting Magneto, and the X-Men are sort of like, all right, we kind of know who this guy is. And Scott's like, oh, holy shit, they have no idea how to fight Magneto. I have to go help them. And Moira's like, I. Part of my feels on that. Okay, so Storm is so powerful, it's hard for me to find villains that are believable against her. Colossus is so strong, I feel the same way. Wolverine's so indestructible. Banshee takes up space on a page. Nightcrawler is really clever and very capable and agile and cunning. But what happens is Magneto does really manage to pose a threat greater than that. Now, I'm going to take two seconds and I'm going to be a dick and I'm just going to point out there's only like three naturally occurring ferrous metals. So theoretically, Magneto controlling magnetism, not all metals should respond to him. I really specifically find Magneto terrifying this issue. There's one moment in particular I want to talk about. Banshee goes right up against Magneto, this guy who has tried to destroy the world before, and Banshee just sonic screams the fuck out of the ground beneath Magneto's feet. If Gene had been there, he never could have done that. If Scott had been there, he never could have done it. If Alex had been there, Lorna had been there, Iceman had been there, just about any other X-Man being in that sequence would render Banshee useless. Claremont was able to find something to do with Banshee, if that makes any sense. And then Magneto does the scariest fucking thing Magneto does in our reading. Yeah, he, uh, he almost suffocates Banshee. He puts him in this metallic casing and closes off his oxygen supply. And you're like, there's a brief moment where attention, we're like, oh, Banshee's going to die. This should be the next X-Men to die. Yeah. And just ready to accept it because they already killed one person off. Killing Thunderbird really does make it that you could believe these people could die. Everybody is in some amount of mortal danger. And I feel like Banshee has added the least. We just got the arc at his place. And there's this moment at the end of the arc where Banshee has to make a decision and he lets his cousin Black Tom die by falling into the sea. Juggernaut's like, no, my boyfriend! And Juggernaut like dives into the ocean after him. But that kind of just like feels like such the end of, of Banshee's barely existent story. You could really buy that Banshee's gonna die. He's like in a living like body bag coffin made of metal. It's actually really scary. Jonah, so this was your first time reading this era Magneto, right? Yes, and this is where I can see where Magneto is the feared villain that he is. He's not holding anything back, and if it wasn't for Scott saving the day enough to buy time for everyone to escape, the X-Men would have ended here. There's no possible way for these X-Men to defeat Magneto. They are down a complete member in that Colossus cannot get anywhere near him. And everyone else is nowhere near powerful enough. Logan too. Logan is completely useless because the... I don't know if adamantium is magnetic, but sure. The next 30 years are going to be a really long discussion about the magnetic value of adamantium. You're saying that this Magneto is a scary-ass motherfucking terrorist supervillain homicidal maniac, right? Correct. Okay, so now I'm going to jump ship. We're going to just hop our boat over to the classic boat for a minute. I don't want to talk about all the classic stories just this second. I do want to talk about this Magneto story. These classic stories involve the magic of hindsight. Magneto's status as a Holocaust survivor has yet to be revealed, but it's something that is used to make him very sympathetic in the backup story. It's actually really jarring. The Magneto in the backup story is not the Magneto in this story, but they want us to accept it. Now, Jonah, when you read these two things together, did you find it hard to believe? No, it is really hard to believe. It, he comes across as almost determined to just make himself have a good life. It almost seems like just at some point a switch just turned off where he went to this murderous terrorist as opposed to someone who could have used his powers to help and save people he could have been a hero 
he just didn't understand what to do with it, and he was so filled with vengeance and hatred that he took a darker route. So what you're touching on is actually going to be the hallmark of Claremont's depiction of Magneto over the next 40 years. This, he could have been the hero. That's clearly not been introduced yet at this point. You know, Claremont relying on us wanting the version of Magneto that isn't here yet can be kind of jarring. I believe we both said that Scott having the X-Men retreat was one of his best moments of leadership. Yes. Because he literally knew this was a hopeless battle. Other than that, let's take a look at some of these classics real quick before we go into the big final arc. Sure. These classic, these past few ones are just not good. They don't add more characterization to people. They don't make people look better. Guess who still doesn't have a classic X-Men story dedicated to them yet? Banshee. We're on classic X-Men 15. Classic X-Men has been coming out for over a year, and we still don't have a second Banshee story. Banshee will resurface in the pages of Uncanny X-Men at some point in one way or another, so maybe this was just in a real lull for the character where no one was interested. But... It's the end of X-Men Classic 15, where they're like, oh, X-Men Classic 16 will feature a Banshee flashback. Let's talk about the people who shouldn't have had the stories they had for a second. Kurt is all sad because Jean's in the hospital, and it's right after Christmas, and he meets a young man, and he and this young man spend a fun-filled night together where he tries to fill the young man with hope despite feeling hopeless himself because that's the magic of Nightcrawler. So what's funny is there's actually X-Men that Jonah's reading a little bit ahead of me. So there's stories he's getting to, and he's like, oh, man, I gotta tell you this crazy thing that's gonna happen. I'm reading the Nightcrawler story right in front of him, and I'm kind of, like, eye-rolling at it, and he's like, just wait. And I'm like, I'm on the second-to-last page. He already taught the fucking kid how to juggle, okay? And I'm thinking, that's the dumbest part? You turn the page, and this nurse is like, no. Oh, Daniel was a ghost the whole time. And you're like, are you fucking kidding me? No, seriously, it's that like, he's been dead for two days. Like, it, I, mad. I'm mad. I'm very mad. Yeah, it wasn't a good twist. It just doesn't add to the story. It makes you question the point of the story. Outside of Kurt just having learning how to deal with his feelings, but you could have written that so much better. It was just not good. A bunch of these are just bummers in the vein of the Colossus bummer oh. from last episode. The Logan story, this Logan story. Now, I actually loved this Logan story, but this fucking Logan story was clearly a Logan story from 10 years later. This Logan only fights Sabretooth because Sabretooth only recently was introduced to the Uncanny X-Men. Sabretooth shows up in this classic X-Men like a good 50 issues before he exists and it was just another bummer like Wolverine just couldn't catch up to Sabretooth Kurt just couldn't save the dead kid and then I, I can't even talk I, oh I, my god I literally I can't deal with the Storm one the Storm one was is absolutely terrible it's not good it's her trying to talk a writer she likes from not committing suicide by like showing him what it's like to fly and like be part of her world. It's just really bad. It's, it is whiny white man pain. It really is whiny white man pain. Storm almost dies. Legitimately almost dies. And you're like, she's one of the most powerful X-Men ever created. Probably one of the most powerful mutants ever on this planet. And she almost dies from a sneak attack? Yeah, she gets, like, super bonked by a security guard. And, like, she's like, Ah! My head wound ability to get. And, like, she just goes down. Yeah, it's not good. It's not- They're not interesting. So, we already talked about the Magneto story. Here's what's interesting. <laughs> the first year of backup stories were just, like, hit or miss. But- Number 13 does something that's just such a metaphor. There's a phrase which means you've stopped being good. That phrase is jumping the shark. X-Men Classic 13, Misty Knight fights a shark. She literally 
punches the shark in the face with her bionic arm, and she's like, my bionic arm packs a wallop. Danny Rand has a perm, and Misty Knight fights a shark, and I just don't know what to- Like, Jean is in it too, please don't get me wrong. I'm not like, this one's inexplicably not about Jean, but like- no, they're all about Gene. They're all always about Gene. Even the Nightcrawler one where he teaches a kid to juggle is secretly about fucking Gene. Misty Knight actually punches a shark. He punches a shark with her bionic eye. X-Men 14 is literally no better. I'm sorry, classic X-Men 14 is more of Lalandra's story from 107 where she's like, <laughs> I don't have a Lalandra voice because like I don't know what bird people sound like. Those are plumes and feathers. The Shi'ar are an avian bird people. That's not hair. These people don't have hair. Those are feathers. The Shi'ar are bird people. So we get an extended version of Lalandra's story. I think because we get it in the issue, we get it, we get a shortened version of it and we get it from Xavier's point of view. I actually don't feel like I learned anything new from Lalandra's story. I feel like I saw her have the other half of Xavier's flashes and we get like a cool reference to who was Lucifer. Lucifer was a battle that Xavier fought in the original run. So like we, we get cool moments. Because we also got the moment where she talks about the Znox. So there's cool moments of continuity, but it's nothing new. Was that the story that you specifically told me you were left with more questions than answers? Or was that the next oh, one? Oh, no, that was the next one. That's what I thought was okay. I do love Lalandra. But it was just almost unnecessary. You put it very well, Nico. It didn't add any more new information. We didn't get anything new. We barely know who Lalandra is as a character up until this point. So just giving her more of her that doesn't add to really who she is, doesn't help anything. I agree. It really doesn't help. I don't feel like we accomplished anything from reading that. It goes into the same category as 15, a story where we were given two panels of it, right? And Claremont must have just been like, I have this idea to make the story way bigger. And he turns this two-panel idea into 14 pages. I really do enjoy getting to see all of this stuff about Corsair. You know, Gene psychically realizes that Corsair is Scott's father in the arc 105 to 108, which we're going to cover in a minute. She doesn't tell Scott, but she tells Corsair, so then the audience sees it. But it's another one of those examples where we're seeing it so out of order. personally feel privileged that I got to read these in their original form, and I didn't read them through X-Men Classic, because I think X-Men Classic only works if you're reading the originals and reading what was currently coming out at the same time. Jonah, before we tackle what was, like, the densest, craziest arc so far, did you have any other thoughts on these classic tales? 15 left me more questions than answers. It added more backstory that is canon, but it's really bizarre. It's really weird. It's not a weird place for it. I think having a little bit more back information on Corsair and the Starjammers, like where they where they started, I think it's good. It's important to have that because they're kind of just thrown in. They're the deus ex machina of this star. But so it's nice to have that. It's just, it's just a lot to put on it. These classes can be summed up in a lot of narration. It's a lot of narration, not actual storytelling. Yeah, because they're trying not to change what is sometimes an incredibly tightly packed story. I want to jump into this last arc. We said that the end of 100 resulted in like a universe-changing transformation, and we really weren't playing that down. 105 through 108 gives us a real sense of what we're dealing with with the Phoenix. My first note about this arc is the pacing. I don't think you can talk about an arc that has a fill-in issue without discussing the pacing. 105 feels so rushed. You start with Eric the Red already attacking. At this point, we have discovered that Eric the Red was responsible for putting Black Tom and Juggernaut 
up against the X-Men. We discovered Eric the Red is responsible for helping age Magneto back to adulthood, and now Eric the Red is finally attacked in issue 105. He's even enlisted the help of Fire Lord, but in order to ensure Fire Lord on his side, he had to release Havoc and Polaris from his control so he could make them seem like bad guys who had tried to attack him. I don't, I don't fucking understand his plan. His plan is fucking bonkers garbage. But we now discover that Eric the Red has been responsible for, like, everything that has happened to the X-Men since X-Men 97. Considering this is a bi-monthly book, that's 97, 98, 99, 100, 101, 102, 103, 104. In 105, we discover the last eight issues have all been one evil person's doing. That represents 16 months in a bi-monthly book. This has been like a year and a half brewing and now he finally attacks. We don't even see him approach. It just starts with him attacking. How did it feel? Just like all, like, did it feel, like, for me, I feel like I lost some payoff. Like, it's just all of a sudden happening. Yeah, it's a lot of jam-packed into this one issue. We're fighting Eric the Red and then we're introduced to a completely different villain who's even more power, like, we just talked about the power boost that Magneto got in 104. Then in 105, they're introduced to someone that makes even Thor quake in his boots in Fire Lord, and they have to fight him. It's so much. And then, just at the very end, they're, we've realized what Eric the Red's plan is. Oh, Lala- oh I'm sorry. Lalandra shows up on top of all of this fighting. And we see what Eric's, Eric the Red's real mission is, is to capture Lalandra or to kill Charles, one or the other. And he captures Lalandra, and by the overpoweredness that she is, Jean Grey is able to send the X-Men to where Lalandra's being captured and taken to. So much happens so quickly. It's my notes say 105 is rushed and the pacing is rough. Then 106 is annoying because it's a fill in 105 starts with the x-men being attacked meanwhile misty Jean, and xavier are visiting her parents so the x-men are being attacked by eric the red while the x-men are being attacked by eric the red gene and co are being attacked by fire lord while gene and co are being attacked by fire lord a, a giant stargate opens up and stuff like there's a stargate there and they're able to like go through it and during the course of the battle the x-men show up to defend gene and and gene is phoenix blasting the fucking fire lord all over the place and everybody's like whoa that's fire lord gene how are you doing this and gene is like i'm fucking high on magic back the fuck off and it works for her for a minute she's getting tired but she's doing the thing and then eric the red escapes through the stargate with lalandra and everybody's like no and there's actually this hysterical moment where xavier's like curse you Eric!" it's hysterical gene's like nbd opens the Stargate, and everybody's like, yo, and she's like, it's what I do. And they all go through the Stargate. Xavier's like, Gene, maybe you shouldn't. And as Gene goes through, Fire Lord comes back, and he's like, I'm gonna kill everyone. And then all of a sudden, the next thing you know, it's a fill-in issue. Like, it's all of that. It's this plan that has been brewing for 16 months in the comic, and all of a sudden, fill-in issue. And it's not even a good fill-in issue. It, here's my biggest issue with this, is that it basically uses a plot they just did. In number 100, they have the old X-Men fight the new X-Men. In this fill-in, it's basically the exact same thing. The only difference is the ones that they're fighting are just Charles not being able to control his powers. They're just images made up by him. It's just boring. It's already something we've seen. They literally pit the two women against each other again, where Marvel Girl comes back, they pit her against Storm, you have Beast versus Nightcrawler again, it's the same thing that just happened. 
And it's even more annoying than that for me because I completely agree with you, but it's like doubly annoying because in 100, it's robots, not really the X-Men. Here, it's psychic projections, not really the X-Men. There, it's they think Xavier is putting them up to it, but it's an evil Xavier robot. Here, it's Xavier is doing it, but it's an evil Xavier psychic manifestation. It's this weird thing where like... This is how they just decide to to deal with the Fire Lord thing. When the X-Men do come back to Earth, it's on the last page of the arc, and Fire Lord is like, having spoken with Xavier in that fill-in issue, I'm going to back off. This terrible fill-in where the only really good thing about it is we we get evil Xavier, who is kind of a fascinating idea, but the fill-in is sloppy. We said 100 was by far the best issue of the first episode. So for this one to be such a a shitty carbon copy, it's the Apple White mystery on Desperate Housewives all over again. Yes, it is. You just, you want it to be good. It it looks like it's going to be the thing you just had and you liked it, but at the last second, it just it pivots in a weird direction and you're just not sure who was responsible for the last second changes. But then we get to go back to 107 and 108. 107 is Dave Cockrum's final issue of his first run, and then 108 is John Byrne's first issue. And these two stories, it's almost like Claremont was like, man, I'm so pissed that I lost that issue. I'm going to, I'm going to put way too much everything in this. Holy like, information overload, Batman. It is... It's mind-numbing. It's it really- too much. There is too much going on. First off, I do want to say, the I love the Imperial Guards. I think they're all amazing. I think they all have amazing designs and interesting powers. And I told Nico this as we were going through our notes. In the few pages that they are on, they have more personality than the X-Men do in their run so far. I really do love something you just touched on, because in my notes, I do say it's important to say goodbye to Dave Cockrum. Dave Cockrum did some beautiful work on X-Men. He relaunched the book. The whole idea behind the book was it's Dave Cockrum, you know, it's Len Wein and Dave Cockrum. And Cockrum had actually brought a lot of these designs with him from an original pitch he had done for DC's The Outsiders. Nightcrawler was a design for that. Storm originally had Wolverine's hair, more or less, and she was the black cat. There was like a big winged vampire bat dude. Elements of the Phoenix costume are from that. So Dave Cockrum is is responsible for some really beautiful, incredible design work that you just went out of your way to praise. And it's not that he isn't a talented penciler, but it just, it he was not capable of, of handling the speed Claremont needed him to go at. John Byrne shows up in 109 to 143. It's just one of those really magical times to love anything. The John Byrne run is beloved. It's not just well-known, it's exceptionally well-regarded. I don't know if you could see the difference in the art right away from 107 to 108, but I, I do think there's a change in the line work pretty immediately. Burns line work is much more definitive. With Cockrum, you get these beautiful, ornate designs on these costumes, and with Burn, you get these striking, powerful figures. I don't know that 108 would have read quite the same way if Cockrum had drawn it as originally planned. Well, I think that's really interesting to see. I read a book called Riot Squad. When Taryn and I first started, I really didn't understand how to be a collaborator, and I would say, these are my cool ideas, do them. And Taryn was like, well, these are my cool ideas, do them. And we would both kind of do each other's cool ideas, and it it didn't do anything. And that's kind of what those first few issues of Uncanny are with Claremont, where he's doing somebody else's plot, and it's all very phoned in. By this point, it's becoming super, super fluid. Claremont and Byrne wind up co-creating really beautifully together. You can see each other's elements in in the work. I think it's really spectacular, and I think we are about to come to a really great place where the art and the writing, they manage to come together in a beautiful way. I sadly, though, need to pivot away from the gorgeousness of the art to talk about some of the complexity of the story. I think when you read 108, you are immediately struck with... The story goes in this unbelievable direction. They find that Deken wants to use the Emkron crystal to gain power, and 
they go to the crystal to stop it and they wind up having to do battle with these two guardians and the guardians are pretty cool and the battles in this issue in these issues are all really cool the other nightcrawler image inducer moment is nightcrawler creates a giant monster to match this giant space monster they're fighting to like scare it and that's pretty cool banshee uses his powers in a really focused powerful way it nearly hurts his voice and that's a really interesting thing that's going to come up a number of times and he defeats one of the guardians and then they fight a big guardian there's a lot of big battles in this arc that don't really go anywhere this is more of that the x-men get wailed on thing we were talking about they go to the mcron crystal they defeat the guardians and they touch the crystal and everybody experiences the greatness of existence except gene Jean, like, sees it as this lattice work she has to knit back together. She sees that she has to put the universe back together just right. She's so exhausted from all of these expenditures of power, creating Stargates and battling Fire Lord, that she's at her last wits, and she's like, I just need more power. If I just had more power, I could do this. And Storm is like, I'll give you power. Take mine, and we'll do this together. And Jean is like, yes, give me. Wait, no, Storm, that'll kill you. And Storm is like, well, it's my life to give, isn't it? And Gina's like, wow, what a beautiful moment of humanity. And it reminds me what I need to do. Corsair, I also need more help. You're right there. Help me out. Not that you're special, but you're in the right place, right time. So then Gene's able to fix everything. The X-Men classic adds a page that really bugs the fuck out of me. Jonah, I know you don't read the X-Men classic version. You read the uncanny version. In the X-Men classic version, Gene, in her latticework story, faces the Dark Phoenix for a few panels. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, Dark Phoenix appears, and Gina's like, I reject you, you will never be part of me! That's a lie. This this isn't Persona, you don't know how Persona 4 works, I know you don't know. We'll get to to that game. But for anyone who has played Persona 4, where they face their shadows, their evil selves, and go, you're not me! And then it basically just becomes them. It's a whole big thing. I just, I hate forcing shit like that kind of early. It's actually a really beautiful, powerful visual scene. It's something I feel is more visual than it is able to be described. This isn't Byrne and Claremont's first time working together. It sure is gorgeous. I just think they're a great team. So Jonah, talk to me now. When we started this, you didn't even know who the original five were, let alone have any idea that each of the original five goes through a massive transformation. Scott gets his power up in giant size X-Men and also is a dick. Iceman goes from Snowboy to Iceman. Angel will eventually become the Archangel. Beast was human before he was blue and furry. Gene, Phoenix transformation, you know, all of that. So you've read like 15, 16 issues plus, you know, extra pages from stuff. Like you've read really like 25 issues of X-Men at this point. How do you feel 20 to 25 issues in to your saga? I said it maybe really well. There's one thing I do want to mention and actually why I'm annoyed for you about the Dark Phoenix thing is that Claremont was doing a really good job of seeding something wrong with the amount of power Jean has. It starts off in 105, where she has all this power, and she's like, wait, I want, why does it, so, it feel so great? I want to do more, I want to destroy more. She's like, no, wait, no, that's not right. And here, right, where she has that moment of telling Storm, yes, I want your life to wait. No, I can't do that. I like that seeding of, like, there's something wrong, something bigger is going to happen. That's great foreshadowing. When you ruin it, completely by spoiling that there is a dark phoenix that takes a lot away and it's kind of a slap in the face to the original readers but right now in my run i'm starting to see where the turn is i'm starting to see the phenomenon of x-men it's starting to become really interesting it's dynamic the characters are starting to find their places and become actual characters and people and we're seeing the battles that they're going to have to fight we're seeing where the limits of where this comic can go. It's basically boundless now. 
you can have them fight anything. You can have them, you can take them wherever you want now. You just took them in space twice. You had them fight demons. You have all these cool things that you can take in, and it's so fascinating to see. And it's just, I'm having a blast. I'm, I'm enjoying reading these so much and seeing where it all came from. And it's just an amazing experience to be able to share with someone that I love so much. Rereading this and rereading it with these classic stories and, and being forced to analyze it in a way I haven't had to do since like the first time I ever read it has been really exciting. And it's been exciting to have fresh eyes to read it alongside. It's amazing that you care so much about the X-Men and you read new X-Men, but so much of this is still a mystery to you. Um, we are getting into some really cool territory with X-Men. Jonah, is there anything else you've got for the second episode of X's for Podcast Uncanny X-Men Edition? I'm excited to see where this goes. I know I said that before, but it's really... I know I said the turning point was at, like, issue 98 in the first episode, but really here's where it's another turning point, where it started to become... You see where they got their feet, and now you see where they're getting their running start. Because it doesn't... It feels like with this momentum, they're not going to be stopping soon. I completely agree, man. It's we're we're in for quite a roller coaster. I really don't think there is a considerable time for a reader to catch their breath until somewhere in the one sixty one seventies. One seventies is really the first time the book takes an extended breath. So hang in, guys. I hope you survive the experience. Definitely became the X Men catchphrase for a good reason. Jonah, where can all of your amazing fans find you? As always, you can find me over on Twitter at Jonah Rubino. You can also find me on Instagram at Jonah.Rubino. I'm Nico, and you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. You can check out my awesome music that I make with my buddy Adam at Facebook.com slash ActionDuo, A-C-T-I-O-N-D-U-O. And if you want to check out some modern, exciting comics with diverse, interesting characters, Go on and check out Riot Squad over at KidRiotComics.com, K-I-D-R-I-O-T-C-O-M-I-C-S.com. And until the next uncanny edition of X's for Podcast or the first Captain Britain, we'll see you guys soon. See ya. Thanks for coming along. Oh.